in Chicago, some of the densest neighborhoods are actually quite white. And yet that's not what's causing people to be infected. I think that you can point to other causes like continuing to go to service sector jobs because you're literally relied on. Uh, the fact that your health services in your neighborhood are not as good as they are in other parts of the city. The fact that you have pre-existing uh, comorbidities like obesity uh, that are caused by inequality between different people. So that's what we really need to be focusing on, I think, in response to this crisis. If we see this pandemic as simply revealing the inequality that already exists in our society, what can we do to help reduce those inequalities in the coming years? From this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Hey everybody, it's Jim Hodap. Welcome back to another episode of Livable City. I hope everybody's staying safe and healthy in this time of pandemic with the coronavirus. As a public service announcement, Please remember to wash your hands frequently, and if you can, please wear a mask as you go outside so you can stay safe and keep everyone else safe around you. These are challenging times that the entire world is going through together, and needless to say, we need each other to get through this. These are not the most ideal circumstances to bring you a special episode this week, but I am excited for the conversation that I had today with my guest, Yona Freemark. Yona is founder and writer of the website The Transport Politic. Yona has also worked as an associate and a project manager for the Chicago Metropolitan Planning Council. Currently, Yona is a doctoral candidate in city planning. I asked Yona to join me for a conversation talking about cities, density, and the coronavirus. I felt like it was an important thing to talk about since a lot of leaders and people are starting to talk about this topic in a way that I thought was quite naive and far too black and white. Yona was gracious enough to join me on today's episode to talk about this, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. And as you can see, Yona has quite a bit of experience around cities, planning them, and the ins and outs and nuts and bolts of what makes them work. Yona is quite prolific on Twitter as well, so I encourage you to follow him there. You can find him on Twitter at yfreemark, that's Y-F-R-E-E, M-A-R-K. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Yona Freemark. Yona Freemark, welcome. Thanks for joining me on Liberal City to talk about this topic that keeps coming up amid social distancing. Do dense cities make us more vulnerable to highly contagious disease? A note to my regular listeners, this is a special episode of Liberal City, and so this show might feel a little bit different than the normal ones, but I hope you still enjoy it. Since I've chosen to live in a relatively dense city for the U.S., which is Chicago, I definitely have my own biases around this topic, but I want to go deeper into the topic since I don't believe it's necessarily a simple answer. But before I do, I just want to introduce you to Yona Freemark. Yona, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, before I dive further into the topic for today's episode, why don't you just start with yourself a little bit. Who are you and uh, what do you do? Sure. So... I am currently a PhD candidate at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I work on issues related to urban planning uh, with a focus on housing and transportation issues. And I'm somebody who's worked in um, city planning for the last uh, 12 years or so, having done you know a lot of writing for my website, The Transport Politic, 
but also uh, for other places and also having worked for places like the Metropolitan Planning Council in Chicago. Yeah, that's great. And you're very prolific on Twitter as well and uh, probably some other social networks that I don't follow. Twitter's my main thing. But yeah, thanks so much for being on today. And yeah, it's great to have you. It's wonderful to be here. Um, so why don't you say a little bit more just for our folks' um, sake, you know, on your background and what do you what do you tend to focus on, and and uh, what what got you into cities and and the focus that you have? Well, my interest in cities really started out from my architecture background. I uh, did an undergraduate degree in architecture, and I'm very interested in built form and creating places where we want to live, where we can walk around, where we can be healthy and and happy and <laughs> enjoy our, our environments. And I learned a lot from having done um, a lot of research in, uh, in France over the course of my life. I uh, lived there for a bit as a child, and then I ended up uh, working there uh, as a researcher after college. And I learned a lot about some best practices in developing better transportation and creating more uh, sort of urban environments than uh, I think we were used to in the United States. And it gave me an interest in trying to understand those characteristics and what kind of lessons we could bring in terms of planning to uh, uh, environments all throughout the United States. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And um, some of the work that I've been doing recently has been on things like uh, trying to understand the dynamics of zoning and its impacts on housing development, and also looking at uh, the politics of transportation, which is really the focus of my dissertation. Yeah, that's excellent. And you did not grow up in a big, dense city, correct? No, so I actually grew up in Durham, North Carolina, uh, which is moderately scaled city in, <laughs> in the Research Triangle area. Um, you know, when I was growing up, Durham was a place where downtown was vacant. Uh, even in the middle of the day, you would walk around, there'd be almost no one there. It was filled with warehouses and factories, uh, with nothing happening in them. And, uh, that has dramatically changed over the past 20 years or so. It's been a remarkable thing for me to follow as a former resident of Durham. And it's been sort of an inspiration because, You've seen just a dramatic amount of new development, so much interest in people wanting to live and work in the downtown area, and I think it's a model for what other cities are potentially able to do. Yeah, agreed. I was there maybe what was it, about a couple of years ago now with some friends. I was hugely impressed with uh, what was going on there. Oh, that's um, really interesting, yeah. Yeah, and obviously it's got a draw, uh, the whole area does, for, like you said, the research park, but also uh, universities, right? Yeah, I mean, it's actually kind of funny because, um, you know, the Research Triangle is named that because right in between the cities of Durham, Chapel Hill, and Raleigh, there's this very large suburban zone that is essentially research laboratory, you know, laboratories and uh, an IBM facility and a GE engine factory that are separated by forests and parking lots and nothing else. It's like the least urban possible place. And that's the kind of economy that the whole research triangle has been built on uh, for the last, you know, half century since since World War II. But what has really changed over the past few, you know, two decades or so has been that there's been a dramatic investment in downtown Durham and 
and Raleigh, and that's really a wonderful uh, change to see in terms of creating, you know, livable places. Yeah, and how did you go then from Durham to where you are now? What got you? What got you focused? Well, I guess I was just sort of interested in understanding how to do research about cities in more detail, and that that led me to do first a, a master's degree in city planning, and then a PhD, which I'm doing now. Uh, you know. A PhD has some wonderful advantages, like you can really learn about, um, you know, uh, what best practices we can use to understand how different variables might be connected with one another. We can understand how to accumulate data. We can do pretty good research based on that and learn from the others around us. There's some negatives too, like you can be, be a little isolated <laughs> in the process, but it's definitely, <laughs> it's definitely uh, been, a, been a good experience, but I'll be finishing up this year. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. And what then for you? What, what does the future hold? Well, I'll be um, you know, going on and, and doing some uh, research in a think tank. Sounds exciting. Yeah, I think it should be good. We'll see how it goes. Awesome. So uh, for our listeners, I asked Yona on today uh, specifically to talk about a, a relevant topic that I think he'll be able to um, explain in some interesting ways what's going on. So I don't know if anybody else has noticed, but there's been some articles coming out, some discussion online about the fragility of cities, uh, or supposedly, around the density and the coronavirus, right? And do dense cities make us more or less vulnerable to that? So uh, maybe you can start, Yona, with uh, helping our listeners just understand what exactly is density in relation to a city. Well, so density can describe a few different things. Uh, in general, it means the, the concentration of people, jobs, buildings, housing units within close adjacency to one another. Um, the way we might use it in you know typical context is saying that a certain neighborhood is more dense than another, and we generally mean that you know there are more people who live within a certain range of one another than you might see elsewhere. And so, one example of this is that obviously a place like New York City has a much higher density than the suburban areas of Long Island that are far away from that, and that's just because fewer people literally live next to one another. Indeed, yeah. And why do you think it's coming up right now in the midst of this pandemic? Well, one thing that has been brought up has been a concern that in New York City, the outbreak has been truly horrible. I mean, there's obviously been this incredible uh, large number of people who have been affected uh, by, the, uh, by the coronavirus, and, and that density has caused people to be concerned that people who are too close to one another um, are likely to spread infection uh, between one another. And, and the idea is that perhaps there's something fundamentally wrong with urban density because if it's causing people to get sick, maybe we shouldn't continue to live in this type of environment. Right. And, you know, just uh, to shed some light on it right now, New York City at the time of recording has around 60,000 infections and just shy of 2,000 deaths, but that's changing rapidly every day. Chicago, where I live, has around 6,500 infections, around 200 deaths. EU cities have similar numbers. So on the surface, there seems to be maybe some credibility to this argument. What do you think? So I think that it is absolutely true that at least when it, with regards to this particular virus, you know, 
being close to one another is obviously not something we want to do. Um, and I think it is probably true that the lack of preparation in New York City caused the response to be really poor and to be one in which it became easy for a very large number of people to be affected very quickly. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the fact that New York City does have many different places where people are in very close proximity to one another, like the subway and, and certainly the parks and everywhere in New York City is relatively packed, creates many opportunities for the virus to spread. And that, that certainly is an issue. The question is, is this a problem that we can't get past? In other words, is there something about density that makes it inherently impossible to control a virus? And that's where I think we, we shouldn't take this conclusion too far. Because, you know, there, there are a number of other places where the virus has actually been worse than New York City. And there are places that are denser than New York City that have had a worse, uh, that have been, been less poorly affected by the virus. Right, like Tokyo, Singapore, and Hong Kong come to mind. They've... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these East Asian cities have been able to control the virus in a way that New York City did not do at all, despite the fact that they are actually denser than New York City. Um, and one reason for that, I think, is that you know they put in they've put in stronger measures with testing. They have people wearing masks everywhere, and this is just something that we were not prepared for in the United States, quite frankly, and especially not in New York City. Um, but even if you look across the continent to San Francisco, which is not as dense as New York City, but is certainly quite dense as far as the city goes. The, the, the infection rate there actually has been quite low compared to other parts of the country so far. And I think one reason for that is that the six counties around San Francisco, the sort of close-in Bay Area, agreed to put in a quarantine on the entire populations of those areas many weeks before people in, in New York City took this seriously. And I think that that action really made a big difference in controlling the spread of the virus. So, you know, I think what this really demonstrates is not so much the influence of density, but rather the influence of good governance in responding to the epidemic. Yeah, what do you think, uh, what, what role do you think that culture has, you know, in this as well? Is, is that a factor, right? Because we we talked a little bit about uh, Tokyo, Singapore, Hong Kong, you know, Asian cities having a better response. And then even even localities, like you were just saying, San Francisco, what, what role do you think culture has on the response and, and how vulnerable they are? Well, I mean, I think it's certainly true that in East Asia, the, the experience with previous epidemics or pandemics like SARS um, certainly caused people there to be much more prepared and governments to be much more prepared for dealing with these types of situations. I mean, the fact that masks, mask use is relatively common in East Asian cities, um, I think in the West has often been looked down upon as, as somehow representing some unnecessary precaution. But in this circumstance, I think we really have seen that that use of masks actually allows people to live in quite dense spaces and deal with this pandemic without, you know, suffering the massive, horrible consequences that much of the West has so far. And so, you know, I, I think that may be a cultural thing. I mean, you know, the U.S. is not a place where mask use is common, and, and that's also true in Western Europe. And frankly, in neither place have we responded to this crisis particularly effectively. 
Indeed. <laughs> Another thing that a friend brought up to me maybe about a week ago, uh, he lives in Poland, but he said, you know, perhaps some of the hardest hit EU countries as well, not taking into account um, uh, like genetics and, and who is susceptible naturally to this virus or not. But there's a lot of cultures that have um, hugging and, you know, like air kisses, like right on the side of the cheek, <laughs> that some of those cultures got hit the hardest, right? And some of that is probably more a factor than how close yeah. we literally live to each other. Well, it's definitely true that, um, you know, in in Western Europe, it seems like Spain, Italy, and France have been affected really strongly in a way that Germany has not been to the same degree. And, and you do wonder whether, uh, you know, the Latin countries, as you might call them, uh, have this tradition of, of facial touching that um, that could be culturally problematic from the perspective of spreading this virus, right? And uh, to you know, on the other side, you've got Asian countries, Asian cultures that do somewhat the opposite, like uh, Japan with the traditional bow, right? Mm. Very very standoffish, and and maybe there's something <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a certain brilliance there that uh, we're not used to. And you're right, maybe you know the U.S. We we do like touching each other. I mean, you're right. We all hug each other all the time, and so maybe that is a, a vector for disease transmission. Um, but you know, I I think one thing that um, we're going to increasingly see in the United States is the strong divergence in who is getting the virus. I think you know this this really started out as a virus among global travelers, people were li- who literally were traveling around the world, moving this virus with them, Indeed. which obviously is sort of the elite of the elite. And we, and it certainly is a virus that it has affected a lot of elite people. I mean, you, 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 we've unfortunately seen deaths of, of people who are known. Um, but I, I'm disappointed to see that the U.S. public health system, including in some of our biggest cities, continues to reinforce inequalities. When you start to look at some of the statistics of who's actually being affected by this virus in U.S. cities, you start to see that actually it's affecting a lot more low-income people, a lot more Hispanic and black people than it is white people from a proportionate perspective. And I think that that really is demonstrative of failing public health systems and of um, you know pre-existing inequalities between different types of people, uh, which is something we're really going to suffer from over the coming months. Indeed. And that has uh, has less to do with uh, how dense a place is or, or really how like a, a place is, is built and more around just the institutions and again, kind of the culture of the, the locality or the nationality. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's also, you know, does your government uh, have this the ability to actually handle processing all these people who are getting sick. That's the first question. The second question is, who is actually working on the front lines to provide the essential services that we all are dependent on? The people who continue to work at the grocery store, the people who continue to work as nurses, as janitors, the people that we desperately need. And the reality is that those people, to a large degree, are lower income and and typically minority. Um, one one statistic that I think is particularly striking is that uh, in Cook County, which is the large county that includes Chicago, 70% of deaths from this disease so far have been African-American, despite the fact that black people only account for 23% of that county's population. 
Um, wow. and, and that's particularly remarkable because in Chicago, some of the densest neighborhoods are actually quite white. You know, uh, River North, Lincoln Park, Edgewater, these are some of the whitest areas in the city. And yet that's not what's causing people to be infected. I think that you can point to other causes like continuing to go to service sector jobs because you're literally relied on. Uh, the fact that your health services in your neighborhood are not as good as they are in other parts of the city. The fact that you have pre-existing uh, comorbidities like obesity uh, that are caused by inequality between different people. So um, that's what we really need to be focusing on, I think, in response to this crisis. If we see this pandemic as simply revealing the inequality that already exists in our society, what can we do to help reduce those inequalities in the coming years? I couldn't agree more, actually. You know, and, and you just painted really brilliantly the picture that um, uh, we like, especially in the U.S., we like really simple answers. And the simple one seems to be just the simple notion of proximity to each other. And you know, what you just painted was a much more complex, much more institutional mature, maturing process that's needed of mm -hmm. our, our things in the U.S., right? I think that's absolutely right. I mean... Look, we all know that the U.S. has a healthcare system that is extremely deficient. We know the fact that a huge share of the people who live in this country are uninsured. That's talked about all the time. But one thing we, all, we don't really talk about as much is the fact that access to hospitals, for example, is truly divergent based on class and race in our country. And that's true uh, both throughout the country as a whole between rural and urban areas where rural people are really lacking in terms of access to good quality healthcare, but also even within cities. I mean, one thing that's remarkable about Chicago, again, pointing to this really indicative city of, of the country as a whole, you know, there hasn't been a trauma center for people on the south side of Chicago, the historically black and low income area, uh, for many years, only until recently when the University of Chicago reopened one at the University of Chicago Hospital. And the reason for that fundamentally is that despite the fact that, of course, you know, hundreds of thousands of people lived on the south side of Chicago and were desperately in need of better quality healthcare, they were not a profitable place because they were lower income and they were not providing the higher quality insurance that was paying the bigger bucks to the hospitals. And so I think that um, unless we start to, to remediate that situation and give more people access to good quality healthcare throughout all of our cities and throughout all of our country, we're going to continue to see these very, you know, divergent outcomes in terms of, uh, you know, who gets affected by diseases like this. This is Liberal City. You're listening to a conversation with Yona Freemark. Very true, yeah. It's been interesting to watch some of the other countries again around the world and how they've handled things, right? So even those that have been hit hard, like Italy, for example, uh, how they were able to rally around the fact, the reality that lots of people were getting sick, lots of people were dying, and what did they do with it? And we seem to be very passive about it, right? Almost like, a, hmm, we'll kind of wait and see here in the U.S. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we do seem to be quite slow. One thing that I wish we would do is talk more about how we can make adapt our cities in a way that, that allows people to still live in them uh, despite the fact that we have this crisis out there. I mean, you know, people who live in suburban areas have the ability to use their yards, the ability to get out in a sort of private enclosed area where they are not worried about people touching them or getting too close to them. But people who live in cities and apartment buildings like me, you know, don't really have the ability to get out and about. And at the same time, the cities are out of precaution closing areas like playgrounds. So the question is, can we do more to open up more public spaces to make sure that people actually have the ability to get outside, those who don't have access to them right now? That's one thing that I, I wish more cities were talking about seriously. Indeed, yeah. I know in the U.S., like Denver's been uh, probably the leader so far in closing down some streets temporarily to cars uh, so that people can spread out a little bit more. But, you know, unfortunately, even like New York City, it's been doing a little bit, but it's seriously lagging on that. Chicago has done zero, to my knowledge. Um, you know, that's an interesting idea that you bring up there, though. What What's preventing us from doing this kind of thing? I think that cities are caught between uh, the caution that they have developed politically over many decades that it's very difficult to do things like close streets to allow pedestrians and bikers to use them, and the fact that they're worried that if they open up streets to pedestrians, that they'll become crowded and uncomfortable. I mean, and this is where the, I'm sorry to keep bringing up Chicago. I just think it's a really interesting place. And I, I used to live there, so I, I love talking about Chicago. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the lakefront was closed by the mayor because it was too crowded uh, and too many people were using it as part of their, you know, daily activity. It was. It looked like summertime. It looked like summertime because people were all working from home and they needed to get out, right? So, the mayor closed the lakefront. But just doing that doesn't actually solve the problem because people continue to need to be able to get outside. And so I think the answer is not to, to close existing public spaces or to open up very small areas of streets to pedestrians, for example, because doing that will simply encourage concentration or make it difficult for people to get outside. I personally think that the, the ideal for cities around the country is to open up as much of their street f streets as possible to pedestrians so that there's as little crowding as possible and so that people are able to get out and about without you know being confined into their apartments. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I've noticed uh, around where I live here in Chicago, people have been using the even the painted bike lanes as running tracks all of a sudden. And Mm -hmm. uh, instead of the sidewalks, because uh, a lot of a lot of areas, Chicago is actually not bad for the U.S. in in terms of sidewalk width. Sad as that is, because it's still deficient in many many respects. But um, we have some space, and yet people naturally want to spread out a little bit more, um, and and they feel like it's generally safe because there's a f there's far less traffic on the streets these days, and yet the city's not closing any streets and just turning it over to people on foot or on bikes. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I've been doing just walking around has been to try to walk in the middle of the street as much as possible um, until a car shows up. And, you know, in Cambridge, that's feasible because it's a relatively small city and, um, you know, there isn't too much traffic on a lot of the side streets. 
Um, but in bigger, denser cities like Chicago or New York, it becomes very difficult. And so I think that cities should be acting proactively simply to say, you know, this block is going to be closed to everybody except for the immediate neighbors, and there's going to be a five-mile-per-hour speed limit if you have to go through. But other than that, pedestrians should be allowed in the middle of the street. I mean, we need to give people the ability to breathe fresh air, to walk outside. We can't confine everybody into their homes just because it's uncomfortable to close the streets. Indeed. And we have to. People are getting very much uh, claustrophobic. I've noticed just even this morning out on my walk with my girlfriend and my dog, um, Chicagoans generally never say hello to each other naturally, especially uh-huh. the closer to the center of the city that you get, because we're always in a hurry, right? Get to and from the loop from our jobs, that kind of thing. And people, I mean, I feel like I moved back to Indianapolis, <laughs> mm-hmm. saying hello, like everybody's saying hello. We're we're desperate <laughs> for connection. It's 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 nice, right? I mean, there's there are some positive elements in a sort of weird way for this. For our society, I think I think we're 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 in this together in in a sort of positive way, and I think in that way, I do have some hope. You know, for some of the things that we talked about earlier about the fact that we are incredibly reliant on people who are low income and especially minority in our communities to provide us food, to provide us the essential services that we rely on, like garbage collection, streets, sanitation. Um, I hope that one thing we will take away from this experience is that those people deserve more respect and deserve more money than we're currently giving them because, um, you know, without them, we would literally not have a society to live in. So I don't know, that's kind of the positive thing I get out of this, that maybe we are starting to get a little more appreciation of how our society works and who we actually depend on to live. Yes, I agree. I mean, just from the fact that if you do live in a city um, in the U.S. where you can walk to like a neighborhood um, restaurant or coffee shop normally when they're open and it's closed right now, you appreciate all of a sudden that you can't do that, right? You feel that viscerally these days. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so going back a little bit onto the topic of density specifically, mm-hmm. um, I've heard some calls from various people, and one in particular was uh, the New York uh, Governor Cuomo. Um, although I think he might have been taken a little bit out of context in this, but you know, he and others have started to say like we need to de-densify. I think he was talking about um, during this crisis of New York yeah. City, but right, it, it kind of started this this explosion of conversations around. Um, maybe longer-term policies to de-densify cities, to spread people out to, at its worst, maybe push people even more into suburban-style living. Um, you know, and quite frankly, in the U.S. and Canada, we have the land to do this. Um, but uh, do, you think, do you think there's any merit to this, this kind of concept of, of pushing people um, out more away from each other? Absolutely not. I think we we have to respond to this pandemic by isolating ourselves, but isolating ourselves in a single-family home versus isolating ourselves in an apartment doesn't really make much of a difference, frankly, because all of us, whether we live in a single-family home or we live in a tower, have to continue to rely on a grocery store, 
have to continue eventually when this crisis is over to go to the office or go to the factory or go to whatever place where we work, have to continue to go to school. (laughs) And all these places are places of dense social interaction that will continue to exist, uh, you know, after this pandemic is over. And the idea that somehow we have to get rid of urban density because urban density is creating the social connections, I think is, is rather absurd. Even in the most sprawling environment in the United States, people see each other, people get close to one another in these spaces of work, in these spaces of shopping. Uh, and that's not something that's going to change as part of this. So I think we're, we're, mis- we're, we're, we're confounding the idea of housing density with the idea of social touching and, and, and density, right? So everyone experiences social density. Not everyone experiences housing density. The problem here is social density. Right, exactly. And as you pointed out, uh, it doesn't matter where you live, right? If you're a human being, and short of living in a cabin in the woods in the middle of nowhere, where intentionally you're going to come into quote-unquote density, dense situations, right, of people where... You know, even at a grocery store, even if you're at a Walmart, right? If, if say, I don't know, a thousand people were in a Walmart, it would start to feel like a dense downtown normally, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, listen, even in the most rural parts of America, you have places of congregation where people get together, whether that's the church, the Walmart, or other spaces <laughs> where people live. I mean, it's just reality. That's, that's, how, that's what humans are, right? We get close to one another to do the things we want or need to do. And um, that's not going to change. And it has nothing to do with the density of uh, housing stock in which we live. And so I think that that's the misunderstanding. I think what we really need to work on is in situations where we have a pandemic that's here or that's coming, which will probably come again in the future, unfortunately, we need to have the supplies and the skills to know how to respond to it. You know, everybody should probably have masks ready at their house, unfortunately. It's something we should be prepared for and have available to us. Everybody should have a certain stock of cleaning supplies that they have available and ready. Um, but that's not something that's uh, infeasible, and it's not something that we uh, can't do in our densest cities. Yeah, agreed. I just had this thought as I was listening to you. It's almost like preparing for a fire, right? We have fire hydrants. We mm-hmm. have fire extinguishers in our places. Uh, we have sprinkler systems all preparing for the event of a fire, which is unlikely for most people, but it happens, right? So I think similarly, if the panic, if the pandemic returns, like it might, right? It, it, there's a good chance that it might, or, or a new version of it. How are we going to be ready? That's right. I mean, listen, unfortunately, you know, a lot of these health crises occur again uh, in the fall. It's likely to come back in some form in the fall. What, what are we going to do uh, to respond to that? That's, a, that's an important question we need to ask ourselves. And then there might be another one in the, in the coming, you know, coming decade or few decades. But we need to be ready for it. We need to not abandon our health systems like it seems that we have. We need to not get rid of our preparation from the perspective of responding to pandemics, as it appears the Trump administration did. So with those steps, I think we will be much better prepared than we have been now. I agree. And yet we have leadership that potentially might say, you know, a really simple answer uh, to being prepared is to spread everybody out, right? Let's get, let's get, get everybody else away from each other. 
and then problem solved, right? Why? What is it about U.S. culture that I, I've seen this as a theme again and again, right? I read this article, it's a really interesting article this weekend uh, from governing.com that was talking about Thomas Jefferson, right? Founding father, third president ever. He was dead set against uh, and and suspicious of dense cities and and is in his time that was about five thousand people was a dense city <laughs> mm-hmm. and there's actually this um, this town in Indiana called Jeffersonville that was designed around his ideal plot layout where basically it was like a checkerboard and uh, like the 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 black squares would be um, parks or open lands and then the the four white ones around it would be plots that you could build on. That was mm-hmm. his idea for like a really resilient, uh, also focused around freedom kind of uh, city layout. So we have this like deep, we have this deep distrust along the whole history of the United States around cities and congregating and there's a myriad of other things I could bring up about that. And yet it doesn't seem like a lot of our leadership has shed that in our in our collective DNA. And um, why why is that? Where's that come from? Well, I think it, it's interesting to look back at the turn of the century public health movements around people like Jacob Reese, who documented the conditions among low-income people in communities like New York's Lower East Side. What he saw and what he photographed were uh, tenements where people were packed in, packed up to the gills. People were suffering from illness. And the response among many progressive movements was to create things like playgrounds, to create parks, to try to reform the tenements to allow in light and things of that sort. And also, as you described, to encourage de-densification of many of our cities. I think that 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 idea, this connection between the density of certain of our communities and public health has simply sort of remained in the public discourse throughout our history as a country, at least over the past 120 years or so. Um, I, I think it's somewhat ironic given the fact that life expectancy in some of our densest cities is actually higher than the nation as a whole. I mean, if you look at the life expectancy of residents of New York City, it's actually higher than the national average, um, which starts to raise questions about whether or not our understanding of the connection between density and health really makes that much sense. But I think people have a sort of instinctive view about how housing density works and how closeness between people works, and they have a view that it is not a sanitary way to live. And I, you know, that's the tradition that we have come upon in this pandemic as well. Indeed, yeah. And I mean, it makes sense looking back, especially before uh, modern uh, technologies of electricity and even uh, motorized vehicles. You know, streets were pretty dirty places where people would let their feces collect. <laughs> right, I'm, no I'm, question. And even the United States, right? It was that way, right? And then you had factories in the cities, and it was a dirty, dirty place. Um, but the fact of the matter is, we pretty much evolved past that. Streets are even though there are cars on them and there's oil and right gas leakage and trash and stuff like that sometimes, they're relatively clean places. Um, but 
you know, maybe maybe it's kind of like that. We we haven't um, we haven't shed that that view in our heads yet. Mm-hmm. I think I think that it is particularly true, particularly true among low income communities, right? I mean, that's sort of at the base of the American understanding of density is the idea that dense environments are places where uh, low income people live, and this is an idea that. Um, has you know been informed by again the progressive movement of the early 20th century but it, but also by things like the urban renewal program of the 1950s and 60s that focused on demolishing dense low income communities often minority communities and replacing them with much less dense areas and i think that that is something that um you know, has has left its mark on our on our society. But at the same time, it is interesting that in many of our cities, the sort of dense downtown neighborhoods are increasingly higher income, and so perhaps there is a bit of a change in thinking about what appropriate living environments for different types of classes of people are supposed to be. Indeed, yeah, and I know uh, there's this distinction, there's or rather uh, illustration that Chicago. Brings again uh, the Streeterville neighborhood, which is right next to Navy Pier. For those not familiar with Chicago, um, it's just north of downtown's Loop, right? So it's it's high rises. It's pretty dense, um, especially by U.S. standards. It has uh, a very high average a- average age life there compared to mm-hmm. then the South Side. I think it's if I remember the stats right, it's about a thirty year difference. It's huge. It's it's remarkable, and I think. Some of that has to do with class and race, certainly, um, but it certainly disproves the idea that living in a dense environment is going to cause you to be unhealthy. <laughs> right, and in this pandemic, right, I've noticed uh, even even for myself what I have access to. Right, I have a good job. I'm a software engineering manager for my day job. I my life has barely changed other than just being confined during this time. Right, and not being able to use the the restaurants and the shops around me and get together with my friends, but that's about it. Otherwise, my work, my life goes on. I doubt it's the same for uh, a lot of folks that live on the south side of Chicago or the west side of Chicago or or even many that live all over the city, right? It's a very different reality. Mm-hmm. And one thing that is interesting is, is looking at the way different transit routes have been affected by um, this crisis because... Obviously, a lot of people are, are not taking transit since they're not going to work anymore. But in, in low-income communities, filled with people who do service work, uh, you know, grocery stores, gas stations, etc., transit lines have actually seen much less of a decline in ridership. And that's true in, in cities all over the country. And that's indicative of the sort of variable response and the way that our city's services actually uh, need to be reflective of the fact that different people are going to do different things in response to this situation. Indeed, yeah. So I'd like to get your thoughts on this. So if if listeners are observing um, maybe the local conversation where they live or the their statewide conversation, or if they live elsewhere in the world, right, their localities, what what would you recommend that they do if they start to notice this simple conversation going on locally, just about density, that we just have to spread people out and then next time we'll be better prepared. Well, you know, I think that the goal for all of our cities during the pandemic or not 
is to create places where people are happy or able to live in a comfortable way and in a relaxed way with access to as many resources as possible. And I think that's true during the pandemic or not. And that's why I think that focusing on ways to expand areas for pedestrians is really key to all of our cities. And I think our cities really need to be saying, again, do we actually need this much street space devoted for cars? How can we find ways to move these areas into the realm of the pedestrian, into the realm of the biker, and make them places that people want to be, not just during the pandemic, but actually into the future, creating places where people want to live and have the ability to live there in a healthy way in the coming years. Yeah, indeed. But you know, I, I can hear some of these conversations and how they might go in my head, right? Some might say, that's great, yeah, there's there's barely any cars using the streets right now, but as soon as life goes back to normal, cars are super necessary. People mm-hmm. of all kinds rely on them to get to everywhere where, they're need, where they need to go. And uh, sure, maybe you can have your temporary street closures right now, but when life goes back to quote-unquote normal, the streets have to go back to normal. You know, I think that there is plenty of evidence in the research scholarship on the impacts of emergencies or, uh, you know, special events, that it is possible to harness these types of changes for radical change in the way that we respond to transportation. There are some researchers like Greg Marsden who have investigated the way actually transitions in transportation use can occur quite suddenly if there is a dramatic change in something happening in a city. And from that perspective, I think that actually it's feasible to envision dramatic changes in our streets right now and to keep them in place after the pandemic to encourage people to change the way they live based on their experience living through this pandemic. I don't, I don't see us as having to go back to some sort of pre-pandemic status quo. And there's also plenty of evidence from cities all around the world that we can reallocate space away from cars, getting rid of urban highways, reducing space on streets, and do so in a way that actually does not increase traffic congestion and maintains a higher level of quality of life than we had before. And so that's the kind of change I think that cities should be fighting for. Yeah, agreed. Um, I know when I had Chris and Melissa Bruntlett on uh, a few episodes ago, you know, they they live in Delft, Never- Netherlands, right now, uh-huh. and they talked about you know some things even even there, right? There used to be in the center of town, um, uh, what would otherwise in Europe normally be like a pedestrian plaza, being used for car parking, right? And then it, it sounded exactly like a U.S. type of scenario, right? The local businesses were like, no, you can't convert that away from being parking. What about our business? And yet they were able to do that. And now it's a very, very vibrant place. And Chris and Melissa, you know, I asked the question, does anybody like come and say, oh my gosh, I want, I want our car parking back. And they laughed because they were like, no, nobody, (laughs) nobody thinks that you'd be, you'd be labeled as crazy these days. So no, because think, once you you know once you experience a space that is dramatically improved, you're not going to want to go back to that space being a artery of road traffic. I mean, nobody, you, you know, it's as simple as thinking about a park that is nearby you, 
would you want that park transformed into a parking lot just because you think that maybe cars need more space? I mean, the vast majority of people would say no to that question. And the same would be true with our streets if we transform them into pedestrian spaces. That's a very good point. Indeed, yeah. What would you recommend for listeners who want to try pushing their city towards, uh, I'll call it a little bit of tactical urbanism during this time, to maybe close off a street or two in their neighborhood just so that they can walk down the middle of it safely, bike down it, and not worry that any car is really going to come down that street? I mean, you know, I, I spent a lot of my time in my research contacting city councilors and talking to them about what they want to do as part of you know, their governing role in their cities. And one thing that strikes me is that city councilors do listen to the people who, you know, reach out to them and, and say that they're concerned. And so I think that you, if you have not spoken to your city councilor before in your, whatever city you live in, this is your opportunity to say, I live on this street. I want to see this street changed because right now my sidewalk is too narrow. Let's, can we have a phone conversation to talk about whether we could try to see if we could do a temporary change on this street? City councilors, I think, will listen. So that's that's your opportunity. That's great advice, yeah. I've had several people reach out to me um, for exactly the question that I just asked you, and that's precisely what I've been advising them to do. I think now more than ever, city councilors are listening, right, because they at least want to know that all their constituents are doing okay, right, the, around this virus. But they've got, they've got like, I would say, an even more tuned ear to the well-being of their constituents right now. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of, of the conversations going around um, the world and other cities around this topic? Is this kind of a uniquely U.S. type of conversation that we're having right now about the nature of cities and, and density around this <laughs> virus? Or is anybody else, you know, questioning this? Is Europe or Asia be like, oh my gosh, we have to spread people out now? You know, I do research in, in France and uh, I can speak to the conversation there and there has not been a similar conversation at all in, in France. And I think part of that may be that... Um, the initial area to get a very large increase in um, coronavirus infections was actually the eastern region on the border with Germany. It wasn't the Paris region, though the Paris region has many cases now. Indeed. And I think that you know the fact that New York City is the center of transmission in the United States has given ammunition to people who are against density in the United States that is not true in other countries. And certainly not true in France. So there is not not the same type of discourse at all. <laughs> really glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, the world only needs uh, one country that's distrustful of cities, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, as we come to a close on our conversation, uh, Yona, anything else you want to leave with our listeners? Any final thoughts? Well, I think one thing that um, I've been arguing for in some writing I've been doing for a, uh, an online site called The Appeal has been the fact that we need to make sure that we are doing as much as possible for homeless people through this time. And homeless people are probably going to be the most affected by this situation of anybody because they don't have a place to go rest at home. And so we need to be making sure that our cities can go out there Give these people hotel rooms. Give these people places that they can be safe without interacting with others. Make sure they have access to food. 
and also give them the opportunity to take advantage of the cash assistance that the federal government is giving to every American who's filing taxes. And I think there are two ways of doing that. One is encouraging city governments to expand their tax filing assistance to give homeless people help to actually have them fill out tax fill out tax forms even if they made no money last year. That will actually make them eligible to get the $1,200 in cash assistance that every American who filed taxes should get in the coming months. And associated with that, uh, cities should be working to allow homeless people to use city government offices as their addresses because that homeless people need a place to actually receive the check in the mail. So with those two actions, I think cities can, can play an important role in expanding access to homeless people to, to cash assistance and aid. That's a really good point, and probably one that most of us really wouldn't uh, think about in our daily lives. So, yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up. That's that's fantastic. Um, where can everybody find you online? Well, they can find me at um, thetransportpolitik.com or on Twitter. Uh, my my name is Y Freemark. Excellent. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this episode of Liberal City. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'd love to have you back if you want some point when we're not in the pandemic and you can talk about more of the, the regular work that you do and, and your research, which I think would be fascinating for our listeners. So Yeah, it would be nice to speak about something less depressing. <laughs> I totally agree. I look forward to that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Yona. No, thank you. I hope this conversation with Yona was encouraging and optimistic for you about the future of our cities, particularly in North America. I don't think it's inevitable that the takeaway that we have collectively after this pandemic is to tear apart our cities even further and spread all of us out. But if you come across local conversations that you think are too black and white, too naive, too much focused just on the simple concept of density and vulnerability of this virus, I would encourage you to get involved in that conversation. Like Yona said, contact your council person. Have a conversation with them on the phone. No, you can't go into their office right now because of social distancing, but you can have a phone conversation. And like Yona said, your council person will be very receptive to what you have to say. I'm really interested to hear how that goes. So if you'd end up doing that and talking with your council person around this topic and how you want to see your city evolve in the time of this crisis, like shutting down streets for pedestrians, reclaiming space away from cars, making us truly more resilient and better in the long run, please let me know. Please email me at thelivablecity at gmail.com or join the Facebook group under the same name and join in the conversation with the community. Again, I just want to remind everybody to please stay safe and stay healthy until the next episode comes out on the regular cadence. Please remember to first listen, learn, and then lead. <laughs>